0: We're going to be starting out today in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 today. Today is Palm Sunday. Uh, This is, uh, some denominations call it Holy Week, some of us call it Passion Week, but this is uh, the week that we uh, celebrate the last week of Jesus' life. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spent a lot of time and energy uh, just highlighting the last seven days of Jesus life. a lot of details, a lot of awesome things happened. But on Palm Sunday today, uh, over you know nearly two thousand years ago, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This is where they lay down the palms. You remember this? They cut down palm branches and laid them down. Some of them laid down cloaks. They're worshiping him. They're saying Hosanna, which was a term of endearment, a term of worship. Actually, it's like his inauguration is where he is being called King of Kings, where he is anointed the King of the Israelites. And this was a big deal, right? Because they were occupied by Rome, uh, so the the religious people didn't like this because if Jesus is claiming to be king. We could lose our worship here at the temple, temple worship. We could lose our our, our influence and our power. So they, they were afraid of Jesus, but that's what happened on Sunday, today. Uh, almost 2,000 years ago, he's anointed as king. He, you know the story. He goes into the temple after this, and he runs out all the merchants and says, my house will be a house of prayer. He goes back into Bethany, which was a couple miles away from Jerusalem, but he goes back into Bethany and stays the night, gets back up. On Monday and Tuesday, this is the day where he curses the fig tree and then teaches on faith. He goes into the temple on Monday and Tuesday, teaches there. He's uh, challenged by the religious leaders, by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes are all challenging him. They cannot uh, seem to, they try to debate him, but they can't win. I mean, it's God, so he really always one-ups them. He always shuts them down and silences them, and, he's, and they're afraid of him, and the people are loving him. They just they just love, love him, but the religious people, they hate him. And Wednesday, we'll talk about Wednesday in a moment. Thursday was Passover. This is where he eats his, what they call the Last Supper, the final meal with his disciples. Of course, you know what happens on Friday. He uh, is betrayed by Jesus. He uh, has, has a mock trial with the Sanhedrin. He's put on trial before Pontius Pilate. He's crucified on Friday, dies at 3 p.m. Saturday is the Sabbath. And then Sunday is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. It's Passion Week or Holy Week. How do we participate in that? This is what the church has done for several thousand years to remember every day the last seven days of Jesus' life with the emphasis of the resurrection, which we will celebrate next week on Easter. But today I want to talk about a story that's right in the middle of these seven days on Wednesday. Uh, on Wednesday, could have been Tuesday, but it's likely Wednesday. Uh, There's this story of this woman who comes into Jesus, comes into this party in Bethany that Jesus is at, where he's eating a meal, eating dinner, and anoints him. Uh, John tells us, we're going to read it from Mark's account, but John tells us it's Mary. Mary is the, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, and she comes in and anoints Jesus, and Jesus says it's his burial. She doesn't know that's why she's doing it. Uh, but here's the thing I want to talk about: Why does she go into this party that she's not a part of? Just kind of interrupts the party, anoints Jesus with this perfume, fragrance is filling the room. And uh, why does she do it? It's because of how much Jesus has done in her life. So Jesus is the one who defended her. You remember the story when Mary and Martha and Martha was busy serving Jesus. Mary sat at his feet. Martha's all upset about it, but Jesus defends her, says, "Hey." You know, she's sitting here with me. That's what she's, what she's chosen was a good thing. It's not going to be taken away. But the most powerful thing that probably she believes he's the Messiah. Her brother believes he's the Messiah. Her sister Martha believes he's the Messiah. Lazarus dies. Her brother Lazarus dies. So this is just a few uh, weeks or months before the, the crucifixion. And Jesus comes into Bethany, and he's been dead for three days and, and raises him from the dead. This is the starting point for the religious people because of their fear of Rome, because of their fear of losing their right to worship in the temple because they're occupied by Rome. They're afraid of Jesus. And raising Lazarus from the dead, many people believed. And so they're like, we can't have this. This guy is claiming to forgive sins. What, how, what, he, you can only do that at the temple. He's just saying this everywhere he goes. He's forgiving sins. They are freaking out about him. And in this story, we're going to see... Kind of the tipping point of the crucifixion happens on Wednesday, what sets the whole thing up. The first thing is the raising of Lazarus. But she's grateful. Like, my brother's no longer dead. He's dead for three days. He's been risen from the dead. This would be equivalent, uh, not quite as powerful as Lazarus, but it would be equivalent Kind of like if someone was in a hospital that was really close to us and they're in intensive care, they're, they're, they're not going to make it. They told us they're going to die, but they pull through in three days and we're grateful. Well, This is different in this regard. He's dead for three days and Jesus raises him from the dead. So she's like just so grateful for the abundance of life that Jesus has brought into her life. And I think this is the foundation or this is her heart in approaching Jesus at this Party that we see him at in Mark chapter 14. A grateful spirit, a grateful heart. She must have a lot of faith in Jesus. She must have a lot of respect for him. She must have a lot of faith in who he is to interrupt this party. And here's where we pick it up today in Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover. And the festival and the unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law, these are the religious leaders, were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Why? Because they are afraid he's going to upset Rome and they're going to lose their power. It's political. They're afraid of Jesus for political reasons. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Why? Because they love Jesus. He's healed them. He's restored them. He's teaching them. Now, that's one way of responding to Jesus is the way the religious people do, politically. But watch his, Here's Mary's response, verse 3. While he was in Bethany, it's a couple miles away from Jerusalem, where he was staying during the last week of his life. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present We're saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now watch this. The other gospels tell us that Judas is the main one to bring up this thing of, like this is a waste, that she's pouring her perfume on him. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, who who went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them? They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so they watched for an opportunity. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This anointing of Jesus for her burial is the triggering point for Judas to betray Jesus. Why? Because Judas, Judas, he's the Iscariot, which means he was in this thing with Jesus for political reasons. There were prophetic words given in the Old Testament that God would bring a Messiah that would restore the kingship back to Israel. This is what they're believing. But they thought politically. Jesus isn't lining up with their political views. And this is frustrating Judas because he wants a political king. He's an Iscariot. This is a, like, basically part of a political party. And Jesus is having nothing. He's like, no, that's not what my kingdom's about. My kingdom's about healing people. My kingdom's about rescuing people. And he's getting frustrated. And now he's telling them he's going to die for his cause. And Judas is like, no, we must rise up. We must take over Rome. And he's irritated by Jesus. And so it's this anointing of Mary That he betrays. So we have Judas who's betraying him. We we have the religious leaders who's threatened by him. And you have Mary who loves him. Mary gives us examples of how we can participate in Passion Week. She is unashamed of her love and her faith for Jesus. So I just want to highlight quickly. Four examples of how she's living unashamed for Jesus. And the big idea today is when we have an unashamed faith for Jesus, we will live in truth even if it's unpopular. Because what she did was unpopular. They said they were indignant about what she was doing. Wasn't popular. What are you doing here? Why are you interrupting the party? What is this woman doing here? She doesn't care. I love Jesus. She, her, she has a love for Jesus. She's unashamed by it. But we can learn from her of how we can live an unashamed faith even when it's unpopular. And the first thing that we, we learn here is that unashamed faith is willing to sacrifice for Jesus. It says, a woman came, this is Matthew's account, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. So we already read in Mark that this expensive perfume was worth a year's worth of wages. So that would be equivalent of thirty-five dollars to $55,000. Mark says it's over a year's worth of wages. So I don't know what you make, but probably somewhere in that realm. And it's way more than that for her. Now, it's a sacrifice that she's making because it's a year's worth of wages, uh, she's in Bethany, so she's not like in a businessman town, right? She's in a working man's town. She saved up a year's wages. Most of the time, this was used for a wedding. So this is something that she saved up for, for her future husband, whoever it would be. It's a sacrifice to take thirty-five dollars to $55,000 and lay it at the feet of Jesus as an to, to worship him. It's a sacrifice to him. Here's how I define a sacrifice, because this represents... A year's worth of working, it represents a, a future marriage someday. It's, it's a perfume that, that, that she would use as a bride. And she says, I don't care. I don't want to use it for that. I love Jesus more. A sacrifice is when we give up something we love for something we love even more. An unashamed faith is willing to make sacrifices for Jesus. I think it was David who said, I will not offer my God uh, something that costs me nothing. It's a cost to follow Jesus. And she's, she's unashamed, and, it, and, and it's unpopular because it's like a year's worth of wages. Who does that? Who gives up a year's worth of wages for a religious figure, for, for, for Jesus, people who love him, people who are unashamed of him? It reminds me of when we were in our building campaign that we started in 2018. And there was a gentleman in our church. His name was John. He wasn't working. He was going to school. He was living. Uh, he, had, he had a family, but he was living away from his family for six months to train how to be a luthier. He was going to build. He's learning how to build guitars. And so he came. He said, I don't have anything to give to the church for the building project because I'm not working right now. He said, but I'm building. Uh, I'm learning how to build guitars. I will give my first guitar uh, for a raffling or if you want to sell it or however you want to do it so that I, that will be my contribution to the building project. Now, six months of, of being away from his family, six months of developing a craft, you would think you would want to own the first guitar you ever make. And he loved that guitar, but he loved the vision that God given this house More. He was willing to make a sacrifice for Jesus. Unashamed faith. And we had even had people who would tell us like, hey, whoever gets that guitar, we should tell them to give it back. Like, just give that back to him because that's a big deal. And I'm like, you don't understand sacrifice. Who does, like, sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. He loves Jesus. Let, don't take that away from him. And look, that'll be, that'll be, a, that'll be a jewel in his crown in heaven. We can never outgive God. Whatever we sacrifice for God, we're going to see the return of investment. It is investment to invest in the kingdom of God, and unashamed faith does this. For Jen and I, when we went into ministry, people called me crazy, but I was working seven years as a machinist. When Pastor Lee gave the invitation, it was a ten thousand dollar pay cut to go into ministry. So you know, that, it's a real you, know, you got to think about that. That's a lot of money. <laughs> Ten thousand grand is a lot of money to give up, and we didn't make a lot of money anyway. So, so I had to think about this. And at the end of the day, I just felt called to ministry. I believed that God was going to meet my needs anyway, and I was willing to sacrifice a good job that had a pension, had a 401k, to go to work at a place that has no pension, no 401k, and I'm going to make ten grand less. And people said, "You're crazy." People told me that. You're nuts. Why would you do that? Well, I love love the call of God on my life. I don't want to be ashamed. I believe God's going to make that up somehow. I don't know how. We made less money, but God provided. Unashamed faith, even though it's not popular, you live unashamed. Uh, Live the truth. Live the light. Live a sacrifice, even though it's not popular. Number two. Um, we see that she worships Jesus in a heartfelt way. Unashamed faith will worship, will have heartfelt worship. It says John tells us this. This Mary was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, this seems romantic, but it's not. It's intimate, but it's not romantic. It's a love for Jesus. It's an act of worship. There is a bowing down. I mean, she's wiping his feet with her hair. Uh, She's on her knees worshiping Jesus. Look, if you can worship that passionately, that's heartfelt. And I see from this story, it's not only a cost of a year's wages, but there's like a vulnerability to what she's doing. It's vulnerable, I think, I would think, to interrupt the party, to show up break this thing pour it on his feet he's allowing it she's weeping while she's doing it it's vulnerable it's heartfelt worship that's what this is often we think about worship is all kind of we can worship God with with our life with our thinking we worship God with our giving we worship God with our singing but i but i mean heartfelt i mean more the vulnerable things it's it, if you get to the place where you become a generous through financially, uh, that's awesome because that's a heart thing, but it, it, it's, saying it's private, but worship publicly is not. It's, it's public. It's vulnerable. So things like singing, things like weeping, things like bowing down, things like closing your eyes and praying out loud for the first time, that's a heartfelt worship. I remember the first time uh, I had any type of expressive worship experience a group in a Wesleyan church we had a I remember we had a an organ on the right side a, a Hammond C3 organ on the right side and a piano on the left side and every Sunday we sang the doxology anyone know the doc, any Wesleyan in, in the room with me praise God from whom all blessings flow every Sunday praise God him all creatures oh so good you're so good all right <laughs> Feel like a child again. But so it's my first time in like a spirit-empowered church, and there's a band. And I'd never seen a band in church. And in, in fact, I went up to the worship leader at, at the end of service, my first time there. And I said, I, I thought it was like a touring band. God is my witness. I said, Hey, where are you guys from? He's like Kalamazoo. And I'm like, oh, so you like just like a bar band, different? different churches, and he's like, no, like, we, this is our church, we, I like, wait, you're here every week, and he's like, yes, every single week, well, during worship, the pastor had come up, said, hey, he encouraged everyone to lift their hands, it was the first time doing this, I'd never seen this done in church, it's a church I grew up in, and I lift my hands, and I feel the presence of God just, just me. I can sense it, and it did feel vulnerable, and it, but it was heartfelt, and I encountered God in a new way, and I remember going back to my Wesleyan church one Sunday, and, and I'd been a while in this other church, and I'm lifting my hands after coming out of the crazy church. I lifted my hands and I'm singing, and I can tell, and everyone's like, like looking back at me, like, why is he singing so loud? Why is he lifting his hands? And I knew, oh, this is, this is not going to be the place anymore. But I wanted to be expressive in, in my worship, I want to not hold back from Jesus. Some of us, we come to church. And it, that is a vulnerable thing. So we stand and we look <laughs> like this. Come on, get this singing done. Some of us wait out in the for. When I was a worship leader in Kalamazoo, my, my wife overseen the bookstore there. And so peop, people would come in and out of the bookstore during worship. And there, she said there was some person who would always sit there. And she didn't know she was my wife. And Jen like, just, you know, makes conversation with her. And she's like, how can we sit in here every Sunday? And she's like, oh, I can't stand the worship. I just want to hear the message. I just want, to. And uh, she's like, oh, okay. Um, but uh, my point is this. And we think God knows my heart, so I don't need to sing. God knows my heart, I don't need to give. God knows my heart, I don't need to sacrifice. God knows my heart. Listen, he does know your heart, but unexpressed worship is no worship at all. Unexpressed worship is no worship at all. An unashamed faith will have heartfelt worship. So I give myself permission to... I don't care if other people think it's indignant when, when I bow, when I when I go to my knees, I love Jesus. He's saved my life. He's pulled me out of depression. He's healed my marriage. He's kept my family intact. He's always provided for me. He gives me his presence. He gives me his voice. Why would I withhold from him? So I give you permission. Just say. Hey, be be spontaneous in your worship. Lift your hands if that's new for you. Maybe that's how you would do it. Maybe that's your sacrifice of praise. Um, Close your eyes and just sit and receive from the Lord. Sing out for the first time. Maybe for you, the expression of worship is praying out loud for the first time in front of your family or praying over the meal. I don't know what it looks like for you, but unashamed faith is unafraid to worship Jesus. We sacrifice for him, and we worship him. It is a worshiping thing. And by the way, isn't it interesting that the temptation of Jesus was about his identity and his worship? Because he said, bow down to me. That's the battle going on right now. The spiritual battle is who you will worship. So I'm not going to withhold. And we see Mary, she's unashamed, and she's just worshiping and pouring this out to him. Uh, even though it's not popular. Number three, unashamed faith. I'm going to camp here for a minute. Unashamed faith will not shrink back or be silenced. It says, when the disciples saw this, this boldness of her, this extravagant thing of uh, perfume and, and bowing down and wiping his feet with her hair, like they're watching this, they're like, this is indecent. And they're calling it, they were indignant. Why this waste? Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done a good thing. Why are you bothering her? We see this. But we are living in a time, and I just want to park it here for a minute. And I want to be delicate, but I got to be truthful. Truthful. We're living in a day and age where it's no longer popular to hold traditional Christian values. And it's sad. Tolerance used to be we could have two different opinions and we will tolerate each other. I, we agree to disagree. Now it's you must comply to my views or you're intolerant. That sounds like intolerance. And it's unpopular. But unashamed faith will keep living the truth, will keep sharing the truth, will keep going all out for Jesus, even when it's unpopular. And she's not going to be silenced. Jesus says, like, don't bother her. She's doing a good thing. She's not going to back down. She didn't shrink back. She continued uh, to worship Jesus. So I just kind of stumbled upon this on a on a website, on a website. Um, a news website I was reading, uh, the, uh, was it the, what's the name of this? Forgive me because I'm not a sports, I'm not in the sports ball. <laughs> I do like baseball. I love it when they get a goal in, in baseball. <laughs> I, I know, I know, they don't get goals. They get home runs or something. Uh, so listen. ORU has made the n- news cycle. The or- Oral Roberts University during the March Madness, like they're, they're they are a Christian university in the NCAA, and and they look like they were going to be the underdog this year uh, for the March Madness or, or for the college league. And and look, uh, people were rooting for them, but last Tuesday, uh, uh, the USA Today Sports one of the writers wrote an article against them, saying. They should be kicked out of the college league because of their religious views. I will quote what they said. It was shocking to me because they took the student handbook, their behavioral code of conduct, literally quoted it, basically berated them. And, and, and called these students in, in the university, like, hateful, teased them for their faith. But I'll just quote it. They called them transphobia. Hom- this is USA Today. Transphobia, hom- homophobia with regressive sexist policies, dangerous, and hateful ideology, very little to cheer about. And called for the NCAA to kick them out. Let me tell you something about that writer. She doesn't have something against ORU. She thinks it's that. She has something against scripture. Does God's word have authority in our life? It does. And just because we hold traditional, and this is what I mean, church, we're living in an age where it's countercultural now to be a believer. And we may not have the persecution that they're having in the Middle East, but there is a, a significant social persecution coming on us as a church, as the church globally, and especially in Western. You can no longer hold to traditional Christian values without being called a homophobia or, or hateful. And the reality is, it's like that, that's intolerant. To, to say I must comply with your view is intolerant. But I would say, look, if you need me, to hold your view, you have actually little conviction. Why does my belief about who God is or what scriptures say or about marriage have any effect on your convictions? It actually doesn't diminish you. But for whatever reason, we think it does. And you must have little conviction because I don't need you to agree with me. I don't need you to believe in God for me to believe in God And if you choose to be atheist, if you choose to not believe, if you choose to have a different view, a different ideology or different theology, it doesn't diminish mine because I'm strong in my conviction. I know who I am in Christ. I know what he's done in my life. You can never take away from my experience. You can never take away from who we are as believers. But if I must agree with you or join your party or celebrate your thing for you to feel significant or for you to feel valued, you have little conviction. But followers of Jesus, we have an it got really serious <laughs> They have unashamed conviction. We live for Jesus even when it's not popular. And I just want to tell you, church, it's no longer popular. But don't back down. Don't be silent. Don't hold back. Don't be ashamed. I get it. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid that we might not be proper. We may get disliked. Now, look, I'm not saying let's be mean. <laughs> I'm not, and there is a time when it may be appropriate to say nothing as a believer. But there's other times where we must stand. There are other times where we must say, no, I'm living the faith. I'm living faith in Christ, and I'm not, I'm not going to back down. So let's keep living the truth. Let's keep sharing the truth in love, even though it's not popular. Because someone would say, well, this is archaic. This is no longer relevant. This is way too old. It's outdated. We've moved beyond that. We're smarter now. We're more intelligent. No, this has always worked. And now instead of allowing this to shape our lives to God, we are shaping God in our image. And God won't have it. So live unashamed. The last one is this. Unashamed faith will outlive us and have a lasting impact. Unashamed faith will outlive us and have a lasting impact. Jesus said this. What she has done will also be told in memory of her. Mary doesn't know in the moment that what she's about to do is going to, probably has been preached billions of times. I mean, here we are, almost 2,000 years later, still talking about a woman from a small town of Bethany, worshiping Jesus in a very extravagant way, and Jesus In all four Gospels, and there's not a lot of things that all four Gospels records, but this is one of them. All four Gospels records the anointing of Jesus by Mary. This is powerful. He says, this is going to have memory. This will be told in memory of her. Whatever we do with our faith is going to have unintended consequences. It was an unintended consequence that her story would be told for at least for 2,000 years, and if the Lord tarries, maybe another 1,000 or so. But unashamed faith will sacrifice. Unashamed faith will have real passionate, vulnerable, heartfelt worship. Unashamed faith will not back down, will not be silenced. Uh, It will keep pressing in, even when it's unpopular. And unashamed faith, if you do it, will have a lasting impact. You don't know that you showing up and serving in a church service and opening a door, what that could mean for somebody a hundred years from now. Mordecai Ham was born in the 1870s. He gives his heart to the Lord. He's a a preacher's kid, so he grew up in the church. But in 1901, he feels called to be an evangelist. And he starts doing these big tent crusades, big tent revivals, all around uh, southern states, uh, and, he, and he's won over 300, Mordecai Ham has won over 300,000 souls to Jesus. 8,000 of those souls have been in pulpits preaching. And in the 1930s, he's holding a, a, a revival in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, and a young man, 16 years old, is there, and he's a bold preacher. He's a he, he's very bold guy, and he points to a young man, and he says, young man, you're a sinner, and you need to get saved. Talk about love. Or talk about just telling through the young man, what if someone said, how about if we preach that way? You're a sinner. You need to get right with Jesus. Come on. Uh, the 16-year-old does it. And his name was Billy Graham, who has won 3 million, 3.2 million people to Jesus. I would submit. Mordecai Ham has left a legacy. And you don't know, showing up for church, serving as a greeter, opening a door, or waving at some parking lot, that you just open the door for the next Billy Graham. Or the next person who's going to be the person that cures whatever pandemic we're up against. Or whatever cancer, AIDS, becomes the thing That has lasting impact. And I hope for Radiant Church. I hope I live 100 years old. I want to be healthy. How did I say it this morning? First service. At a ripe old age. I want to thank you Marietta. I want to die young at a ripe old age. But I hope, I hope that this building all last me. And that we have all their campuses. That if if Jesus doesn't come back for another 200 years, that we have multiple campuses like the retreat center where marriages are being healed, men and women are finding freedom in Jesus, where people are discovering God for the first time or getting saved because we lived unashamed. You will leave a legacy if you do that. Unashamed faith will live out truth, will keep living for Jesus, keep speaking the truth, even when it's not popular. And if you do that, you're going to have a lasting impact. You don't know it yet. We don't get to choose it. God'll choose it for us. But do something that will leave a legacy for others. Let's stand up. We're going to pray.